Well, welcome everybody. Thank you for joining us this evening. I'm Father Charlie Gordon, and uh, my colleague Dr. Karen Eifler and I are the directors of the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture here uh, at the university. And of course, we first have a little housekeeping to do, uh, very little this evening, really. Just want to let you know that if you are a K through 12 teacher of any sort at all, and would like to get free PDUs, professional development units, uh, for attending this or any other Garaventa Center event by special uh, arrangement with the university's School of Education uh, that's available to you. So you can just uh, sign the sheet uh, at the end of the evening and uh, we'll get that off to you. And um, if uh, you're a student and you would like your professor to know that you are here this evening. There will also be uh, sheets here uh, as you depart that you can sign and we can, uh, we can make that happen as well. We usually give uh, sort of coming attractions at this point, but we're rounding toward the end of the Garaventa Center schedule of events uh, for this semester. We've got uh, the, uh, the wine and cheese reception uh, before this Saturday's performance of uh, Dr. Faustus by Christopher Marlowe. Uh, during that uh, reception, there will be uh, three eight-minute talks by um, professionals from using different uh, lenses to uh, cast light on that uh, extraordinary play. So we've got that happening. And uh, keep an eye out for the Advent Visio Divina uh, coming up. Uh, we have to get into Advent before we can start doing that. Uh, so, uh, but next semester, we'll kick off again with uh, another extraordinary schedule of events. And you can pick up a copy of uh, next semester's uh, schedule of events uh, as you leave this evening. Uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky's writing is uh, deeply imbued with Christian faith, and with the conviction that Christians don't need to close their eyes to uh, the enormity of the human condition, and the conviction that love, whatever the circumstances, endures, hope endures uh, in the midst of human suffering that we need to uh, take responsibility uh, for the world we live in, and uh, we need to shoulder one another's burdens. Um, but perhaps the most famous bit of Dostoevsky, uh, in our English-speaking world anyway, uh, is the parable of the Grand Inquisitor in the Brothers Karamazov which is a uh, devastating, uh, withering uh, critique of uh, Roman Catholicism uh, by uh, Dostoevsky's character. Uh, Dostoevsky himself um, was Russian Orthodox, of course. And, and most of us, or very many of us anyway, have, have run into that amazing parable. And we're probably uh, struck by the question, you know, what exactly uh, 
uh, is uh, this superb artist's relationship with, uh, with Roman Catholicism that he obviously has these, these great passions about. Well, uh, tonight uh, we uh, literally have the person who wrote the book on the subject to, uh, to help us uh, explore that. In fact, it's not, of course, just on that subject. It's, uh, it's called Dostoevsky and the Catholic Underground um, and is, the, is a comprehensive history of Dostoevsky uh, and Catholicism. So uh, we are really uh, delighted to have our speaker with us this evening. And I'd like you to help me welcome our speaker from uh, the university, or, or from St. Louis University, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Blake, to speak to us about Dostoevsky's engagement with the Catholic literary tradition. Please welcome her. Thank you very much for your warm welcome today. Um, it has been a very lovely 24 hours here in Portland, um, and I've appreciated all your generosity. Not many people know that I was a pastor's wife in a former life, and so when I go back into sort of church circles again and get out of academic circles, I know this is a mix, um, I, I get a very warm feeling, and so I feel like I was hosted very well um, in this generous campus. Um, I'm talking from my book, which is Dostoevsky and the Catholic Underground, so it mixes Dostoevsky and political theology, because Dostoevsky really believed that Jesuits were far more politically active than they are. Um, I know I had a young um, Jesuit in formation tell me, you know, if we were responsible for all the things that they said we were responsible for, we'd be very busy. Um, so uh, uh, this is... Um, there's, there's conspiracy theories there, definitely. Um, he also thinks that the Pope is far more engaged in day-to-day -day Catholic activities than could possibly, could actually occur. So um, I will talk about that, and then I'm also talking about specifically the literary tradition. I've been working on uh, religious aesthetics since then, um, engaging a little bit of Flaubert and a little bit of Tolstoy. Um, so I'm also going to think about some ideas that I tossed around in some conference papers there. So I'm going to read from script, and then afterwards we can do the Q&A. Um, so let me begin. My faith is tied to my aesthetic sense. So I chose for the first chapter a citation from Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited, in which Sebastian Flight attempts to explain his faith to an incredulous Charles Ryder in the following exchange. But my dear Sebastian, you can't seriously believe it all, can't I? I mean about Christmas and the star and the three kings and the ox and the ass. Oh yes, I believe that. It's a lovely idea. But you can't believe things because they're a lovely idea. But I do. That's how I believe. And I think that's true for a lot of us. Um, so it's interesting to me that the author of Deep Faith, who is the subject of today's lecture, also discussed faith and related issues on the level of idea. I imagine that this testament to the power of ideas is related to the French expression idée fixe, with which a contemporary of his credits great men who move history. Such an idée fixe was Catholicism in its time, then Protestantism during the epoch of the Renaissance, and revolution in the 18th century. 
Dostoevsky discusses the power of the Roman idea, so one can encounter in his writings many works of art and literature that inform this concept. His love of Raphael's Sistine Madonna, his idiot's test of faith before Holbein's The Body of Christ in the Tomb, and the pageantry of the Grand Inquisitor transmit to his readership that aesthetics impact the personal experience of faith. Gustave Flaubert understands uh, this well, especially in one of his three tales, A Simple Heart, in which Felicité, with her mystical sensuality, becomes receptive to the priest's account of sacred history, following her observation of stained glass images of the Holy Spirit and a woodcut of St. Michael and the dragon. She believes she saw paradise, the flood, the Tower of Babel, the cities all in flames, the people who died, the overturned idols. She kept from this dazzling array the respect of the Most High and the fear of his anger. His most sensational novel about adultery, Madame Bovary, which enters into the story of Dostoevsky's Nastasia Filipovna, displays a mystical connection to the crucified man-god and sacred liturgy, during which Emma Bovary breathes the mystical languor that exhales the perfumes of the altar, internalizes the sacred heart pierced with a sharp arrow, and gazes upon religious images such as that of the poor Jesus who falls when marching under his cross. Owing to my fascination with Christian aesthetics and my monograph, Dostoevsky and the Catholic Underground, I explore how works of art and literature engaging Catholicism inform his portrayals of Western Christendom. In his innovative theological analysis in Diary of a Writer, that prioritizes the Slavic idea from the East. Dostoevsky appreciates the power of the Catholic idea while equating Jesuits with atheists and predicting the spiritual death of the Protestant idea a faith born of Luther's protest with denial as foundational. Dostoevsky's Prince Mishkin characterizes Catholicism as a faith having lost its moral authority, thereby making space for the rise of socialism, quote, from despair, in contradistinction to Catholicism in a moral sense, in order to replace the lost moral authority of religion with itself, in order to quench the spiritual thirst of parched humanity and save it not by Christ but also by violence. Although Dostoevsky's visionaries betray a conviction that a national idea can save Russia from Catholicism and its derivatives, Dostoevsky's tragic novels, The Idiot and Demons, express skepticism about the ability of the Russian idea to enact social change in a way similar to that of the Roman idea propagated by the Catholic Church. Instead, the physical destruction of many central characters associated with Russianness, the murders of Ivan Shatov and Nastasia Filipovna, Prince Mishkin's descent into idiocy, and the conversion of Oglaya Yapanchina to Catholicism, demonstrates the limited power of Russian idealism to address immediate concerns. Instead, Dostoevsky indicates that he turns to literature written in a Christian era, specifically that of William Shakespeare and Cervantes, to address Russia's accursed questions. Accursed questions, right? Who is to blame, right? Um and what is to be done. The 17th century, associated with the Reformation in the West, but often characterized as medieval in Russian scholarship, in medieval in Russian scholarship, remains important for Dostoevsky's literary development. Owing to French theater and philosophy, as well as Cervantes's satirical novel and Shakespeare's innovative plays that address controversial spiritual concepts like predestination, divine grace, and human will, central to Reformation conflict. 
Dostoevsky appreciates the spiritual dimension to the century's literature and his discussion of Hamlet on the afterlife, Shakespeare's depiction of the more Othello, Jean Racine's Greek plays portraying human divine encounters, and the resolution of love and duty in medieval Spain in Pierre Corneille's The Seed. The literary and especially theatrical response to ecclesiastical and monarchical authorities in England, Spain, and France yielded fecund creations that caught the imagination of European literati for centuries, as Dostoevsky realizes in his discussion of European genius and his identification of Corneille as the worthy predecessor of the popular 18th century satirist Voltaire, whom he admires for a passionate faith. For these reasons, the way in which I understand the Catholic literary tradition for Dostoevsky is expansive enough to include many genres from European nations west of Russia, including the poetry of Adam Mickiewicz, that's Poland, the novels of Eugène Sue, Alexandre Dumas-Père, Flaubert and Cervantes, the plays of Racine and Corneille, and the philosophy of Pascal and Rousseau. Through his engagement with these authors, Dostoevsky explored idealism and coercion the zeal of believers in its exploitation by ecclesiastical hierarchies, conspirators in the Pope's Jesuit army, predatory materialists or godless impostors. On the one hand, Don Quixote allows Dostoevsky to recognize the tragedy that emerges from Don Quixote's encounter with the chivalric tradition, which inspires the sublime but does not impart the genius necessary to translate it into action. Don Quixote steadily preserves his faith in something eternal, despite repeated challenges to his chivalric ideal, and so remains a positive literary type for Dostoevsky, even when his contemporaries value Cervantes more for its satire, for its ideal conceptions of a past epoch. The Russian novelist maintains the universal value of Cervantes' novel for present and future generations, since he claims, quote, man will not forget to take with him the saddest of books to God's last judgment. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, Mitskevich's Conrad Valenrod uh, represents like the Grand Inquisitor, the exploitation of fellow believers, and the acceptance of burning people in good conscience. Similarly, in Ivan Karamazov's rebellion, that precedes the Grand Inquisitor, the endorsement of Richard's guillotining by Protestant Christian philanthropists allows for state-sanctioned execution, at least in good conscience, if not as a triumph of justice. In this way, the presence of Catholic literature in Dostoevsky's writing encourages him to address issues of faith, conscience, and violence in dialogue with crises that help shape Western Christendom. These literary depictions of Catholicism allow him to present Napoleon's, Galileo's, and Copernicus's as part of the Russian revolutionary tradition, when his Russian intellectuals integrate them into their political rhetoric. However, the author fails to impart to his Catholic revolutionaries a grounding in their own traditions, which allows Dostoevsky to exploit the gap that he perceives between the ideals inspired by Roman Catholicism and the violence perpetuated by representatives of Western Christendom. At the same time, Dostoevsky responds to the allure of the Catholic medieval and Reformation ages as he shares with compatriots a fascination with what a contemporary describes as the parallelism of events in various spheres of the world life. The strange, mysterious coincidence of the creation of Don Quixote and Hamlet that attests to the solidarity of well-known ideas 
and their worldwide continuous connection. Shakespeare's and Cervantes's creations, famously linked to St. Bartholomew's Night, are part of a fascination with the Middle Ages, chivalry, and the mysteries from the world beyond the grave as a protest against the age of reason that engendered the revolution of Robespierre and Rousseau. This era also provides the backdrop for Dumas' novel Queen Margot, which was circulated in Dostoevsky's prison camp, with its focus on events related to the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Therefore, in some respects, the 19th century Russian intelligentsia gained a knowledge of the Reformation through readings of Shakespeare, Cervantes, Schiller, Voltaire, Dumas, etc. And British, novel D. H., British novelist D.H. Lawrence identifies in Dostoevsky that same crisis of middle European history evident in the tragedies of Shakespeare and Corneille, whose Hamlet and Lacide, respectively, Dostoevsky particularly admires. Because Dostoevsky believes in an internal connection, the religious connection, between the Middle Ages and his present day, which is the late 19th century, he understands the 1870s tensions between Bismarck and Pius IX, known as the Kulterkampf, over the issue of papal infallibility as another chapter in Reformation history, and views the Franco-Prussian War, that's 1870 to 71, as yet another European clash of Protestant and Catholic civilizations, whose violence signifies, quote, in our 19th and so enlightened century, the resurrection of religious troubles and perhaps even wars, fitting only to the barbarity of the Middle Ages. In various notebooks, Dostoevsky holds the Catholic Church responsible for this violence. Owing to its attempts to suppress scientific discoveries, its pursuit of wealth, and its demand for high moral virtue rather than love. In other words, out of the Catholic hierarchy's assertion of its ecclesiastical authorities with the goal of maintaining conformity during the age of discovery, arose an intellectual rebellion, evident already in the works of the encyclopedists, who, according to Dostoevsky, began to propagate to people into the whole world that she, meaning the church, came into being, and that it was possible to make do without the church and without Christ. Then followed the revolution. It accomplished very little, but then comes socialism. It's disjointed because it's from a notebook, so it's just notes. Therefore, Dostoevsky and his heroes can celebrate the accomplishments of great Catholic historical personages like Galileo, Columbus, and Copernicus. But those who use violence to achieve their desired ends, like Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor, Gregoria Trepev and Napoleon, are censured for adopting a casuistry associated with the Jesuits in the literature of Pascal and Dostoevsky's notebooks. Dostoevsky's linking of these historical types to the Jesuits in the double, Crime and Punishment, and the Brothers Karamazov, demonstrates the importance of Roman Catholicism for the creation of his idealized revolutionaries. At the same time, it evinces Dostoevsky's anxiety over the pervasive Catholic influence on Russian society during Russia's period of reforms, a period that saw increased pressure from Westernizers seeking official acceptance of religious pluralism. Dostoevsky's rejection of this pluralism for Russia is evident in his diary of a writer, in which he advocates for the Kulturkampf against the Catholic Church criticizes Orthodox believers for turning to Lutheranism to avoid the Lenten fast, and equates Russianness with Orthodoxy. His encounters with Catholics in Siberia 
and during his travels in Europe convinced Dostoevsky of popular papal support throughout Europe for a policy of militant Catholicism that aimed to expand the Catholic monarch's sphere of influence at the expense of all believers. For this reason, Dostoevsky increasingly sought to counter the cultural and political emphasis of the Roman Catholicism by exposing the moral bankruptcy of the Roman idea in his novels and journalistic writings. So now I'll talk more about the inspiration that Dostoevsky draws from Catholic literature. Although critical of Catholic priests, Jesuits, and Pius IX, Dostoevsky nevertheless infuses his novels with literary and artistic images linked to Catholicism that display an aesthetic power that inspires, yet can destroy his often idealistic heroes. For Dostoevsky, Catholicism encourages a tragic idealism that Robert Louis Jackson finds at the center of Dostoevsky's assessment of the human condition. Quote, at the core of his aesthetics and spiritual outlook, is a tragic idealism, a view of man's relation to himself and human existence as one marked by a permanent intra-contradiction or discord, one never resolved, yet sublimated, as it were, in a permanent tension toward the ideal. Such idealism earned Dostoevsky a cell in the Peter Paul Fortress and landed him in a Siberian prison camp for four years, owing in part to a youthful interest in French novels and socialism, as a fellow inmate observes. In what way... Someone could rightly ask, could a man such as Dostoevsky, who received a military education, descend to a labor in the fortress? The thing is simple. Some works of progressive French authors fell into his hand. The truth which he read there forced itself as far as the abode of his reason, and he could not understand it. He pro it properly awakened him and showed him the whole falsity of his conduct in life, and he then longed for improvement. They didn't leave the camp, friends, so it is critical of Dostoevsky. All the same, Dostoevsky does not distance himself from the Catholic literary tradition, since he continues to draw on these Western resources as intertext for his great novels. His contact with the conspiratorial Petrushevsky circle, for which he was sentenced to prison and exile in Siberia, encouraged this artistic exploration, since this circle was fascinated with the Jesuit order, as is evident from their readings of the anti-clerical novel The Wandering Jew, Eugène Suze, and Pierre Zacconi's The History of Secret Political and Religious Societies, which refers to the Jesuit promotion of tyrannicide when revealing the popular acceptance of the society's participation in the assassination of one of the monarchs of France. The young Dostoevsky likely appreciated Sue's presentation of the ambitious and avaricious Jesuit intriguer, Monsieur Rodin, whose portrayal advances the society, the association of the Society of Jesus with conspiracy. The Petrushevsky circle could also have been where Dostoevsky became familiar with the writings of Lamennais, since this proponent of Christian democracy was well known to the Petrushevsky and was later praised by Dostoevsky as one of the greatest representatives of Catholicism for his attempt at Christian renewal. A key point in Lamennais' words of a believer, that is, the brothers of Christ have not been condemned by their father to slavery is echoed in Viserion Belinsky's letter to Gogol, which maintains that brothers in Christ, a brother cannot be a slave of his brother. Dostoevsky's opposition to serfdom, his ardent love of Christ, and the prison sentence he served as a result of reading this letter aloud at the meeting of the Petrushevsky Circle, suggests that Lamennais had a lasting impact on his Christian thought. During his early friendship with Belinsky, 
Dostoevsky links Jesuitical intrigue and the historical pretender from the time of troubles, Grigorya Tretyev, to contemporary St. Petersburg in the fantastical imaginings of his hero in the double, Yakov Galyadkin. Um, by this moment in history, the image of imposture during the time of troubles had been shaped by Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox cultures during the plays of Lope de Vega, uh, in the plays of Lope de Vega, uh, Alexander Sumarokov, Alexander Pushkin, and Friedrich Schiller. Having written two dramas early in his career on Catholic claimants vying for political power in the midst of religious conflict, Dostoevsky could have appreciated the representations of Reformation strife. In the double, Galyadkin introduces a Trepius name to underscore the presence of cunning and intrigue, even in this industrial age, from which he distances himself with reference to the Jesuits, who, quote, said is their own principle to consider all means suitable so long as the goal could be attained. References to the Jesuits and Atrepiev in the novel attest to Dostoevsky's early association of casuistry with the Society of Jesus, to which he returns in Crime and Punishment, in which casuistry motivates Raskolnikov's murder of the pawnbroker for the betterment of humanity. Raskolnikov's emphasis on the conscience's perception of an act as a determining a factor in the criminality enables him to convince himself that, uh, that providence sanctifies the bloodshed of one woman as a life in exchange for many by providing him with access to the murder weapon and the opportunity to commit the deed with impunity. In this post-Siberian novel, the reader senses Dostoevsky's familiarity with Dumas' Count of Monte Cristo, which we know is available to him in prison, since his co-conspirator read it alongside other novels of Dumas and Sue. Indeed, in his autobiographical novel about this prison experience, Notes from the House of the Dead, Dostoevsky includes a reference to some novels of Dumas, and in his Siberian novel, Uncle's Dream, Dostoevsky provides a provincial society lady with a romantic sensitivity that appreciates the grandiose scandals of the Count of Monte Cristo. The discussion of Napoleon in Crime and Punishment as representative of an egalitarian type, inspiring supreme ambitions in the common man, and its comparison of him to the Muhammad of the East, would find a receptive reader in Dostoevsky's protagonist, Raskolnikov. Raskolnikov likens Napoleon to Muhammad in his discussion of the rights, responsibilities, and abilities of extraordinary men who can shed blood in good conscience for the sake of a great idea. Furthermore, Napoleonic links in the, uh, to the Society of Jesus, such as those intimated in Lev Tolstoy's War and Peace, suggest that Dostoevsky was motivated by his visions of revolutionary Jesuitism to attach to Raskolnikov's extraordinary man theory, the image of the conquering French general whose conscience seemed to have given him permission to use any means necessary to realize his egalitarian ideal. In exploring this sanctification of bloodshed, or at least this permission to step through blood, Raskolnikov anticipates Ivan Karamazov's poem, The Grand Inquisitor, in which the title character defends his own tyranny, requiring the coercion of the faithful in order to arrive at social harmony. Both Raskolnikov's Napoleon and Ivan's Grand Inquisitor are characterized as geniuses with exceptional ideas who suffer deeply for the blood they have shed, since truly great people must feel great sorrow on this earth. In Demons, Dostoevsky reveals that he can value Protestant and Catholic images as ideals 
with universal appeal, despite their origins in theologies that he finds ulterior to Russian culture. For those striving for an, for an ideal, unrealizable and earthly existence, his Stepan Trofimovich recommends the art of Shakespeare and Raphael, which appeals to an aesthetic sense that universalizes them, concluding that they are the real fruit of all humankind. Furthermore, the rake Nikolai Stavrogin recasts Flood the Rain's Echis in Galatea as the Golden Age in order to enhance the spiritual significance of this mythological painting, since its landscape and beautiful people evoke tears of happiness from this aesthete who believes that the painting represents the dream, quote, for which all humanity its entire life devoted all its strength, for which it sacrificed everything, for which prophets were killed and died on crosses, without which people do not want to live and cannot even die. Placing Raphael's Madonna in the drawing room of Nikolai Vasilov in the adolescent and rendering it Mitya Karamazov's ideal, juxtaposed with that of Sodom, Dostoevsky returns repeatedly to this Catholic image of the Madonna and Christ, despite the many famous Orthodox icons depicting a similar scene. Therefore, his receptivity to religious artwork does not fall along denominational lines, but embraces multiple traditions in an effort to connect with the crucified logos as a human ideal, who is subject to the laws of nature, which did not spear their own miracle. As Raphael's Christ child, Jesus models the self-effacement that characterizes him and the brothers Karamazov as the silent wanderer, the one who embraces with the kiss of temporary submission, and the silent vision appearing to Alyosha as the son at the gospel's eternal wedding banquet. As Malcolm Joan notes, the two brothers, Ivan and Alyosha, impart similar solar imagery to Christ, since with Jesus' return to earth, the sun of love shines in his heart, rays of light, enlightenment, and power streaming from his eyes and pouring over the people shake their hearts with responding love. However, this image of the sun also corresponds to Paul's vision on the road to Damascus of Christ as a light more brilliant than the sun shining in the sky at midday. And light imagery is well, att well attested in the Hezekiah tradition with the light of Tabor, a tradition which flourished in Russia. Owing to Paesi Vilichkovsky, the translator of the Philokalia into Slavonic, who is mentioned in the commentary on the tradition of the elders in Dostoevsky's novel. Dostoevsky does not conclude the arguments presented in the book Pro and Contra in this second part of the novel, and Pro and Contra is where the Grand Inquisitor is located. But he returns to them in the third part, when another visitation, this time by the devil, constitutes part of Ivan's delirium. Ivan is never sure if his interlocutor, this fallen angel, an X in the indeterminate equation, exists separately from his own consciousness. This non-denominational devil is also critical of the Roman tradition, with its anecdotes about Jesuit casuistry and a potter attempted in the confessional. But they compare poorly with Ivan's literary creations. This devil has a better sense than Yvonne of the world beyond the grave, with its own measurement of time and its own arithmetic that values the soul of one who has eaten locusts while praying in the desert over the many feeble so beloved by Yvonne's Grand Inquisitor. Yet, since the Grand Inquisitor also wasted his life for a deed in the desert, 
out of love for humanity. The devil's arithmetic signifies hope for this suffering servant's salvation, especially given Zosima's promise of abundant mercy shared by the son at the feast to which one is admitted in exchange for a simple act of reciprocity. That is the donation of an onion, not the purchase of Yvonne's ticket, since the beatitude reads, blessed are they who show mercy. Mercy shall be theirs. Thus, as the prominent Protestant theologian Karl Barth maintains, Dostoevsky leaves the problem of an ethical existence open to be answered beyond the text in the expanse of time, since the hope of the church resides in the kiss upon the inquisitor's lips, in answer to the abyss, terror, demons, and sin that haunt the locust eaters in the desert. For Dostoevsky, this hope is situated in the incarnated Christ the ideal of man in the flesh, who represents the highest development of personhood, owing to his voluntary annihilation of personhood, an individuating principle binding one to the earthly realm. Even Yvonne's devil, revisiting the point in human history when the word, having died on the cross, ascended to heaven, suffered from a momentary lapse in common sense and wanted to join the chorus to shout Hosanna with everyone just as the children in Yvonne's poem greeted the radiant Christ when he appeared in Seville. So now I'm going to move to the tragedy part of tragic idealism and how tragedy meets Catholicism and Dostoevsky's understanding. Between the crucifixion and the second coming lies the ecclesiastical age, to which Dostoevsky periodically alludes in his writings. He marks the end of the first seven ecumenical councils in the 8th century in Demons and the Brothers Karamazov, for it is since this period that the Inquisitor has been with the terrible and intelligent spirit of self-annihilation and non-being that tempted Christ in the desert 15 centuries before. This marks the schism between Eastern and Western churches several centuries before the 1054 break, while at the same time establishing the significance of the Reformation, which saw the founding of the Society of Jesus as formative for Western Christendom. The Inquisitor represents the epoch when medieval feudalism begins to deteriorate owing to Columbus's encounter with the Americas, the turmoil of the Reformations, and the scientific discoveries of the Renaissance humanists, which Dostoevsky associates with the broadening of human thought, characterized by Catholic figures such as Copernicus and Galileo, who contributed to the advancement of civilization during an age of Christian faith. Dostoevsky's interest in Catholicism lies between this age of discovery and the aftermath of papal infallibility at Vatican I, which saw the rise of the old Catholic movement, a group that refused to recognize the decree and that sought closer relations with the Russian Orthodox in connection with the Society for Lovers of Spiritual Enlightenment, to which Dostoevsky belonged. Dostoevsky did not support the overtures to the old Catholics because he remained convinced of the power of the Catholic idea, as he writes that the strong brethren, proud minds, representatives of power and intelligentsia, will drive into the arms of Rome those weak and pure of heart throughout all of Protestant Europe, who tire of the burden of their freedom of conscience and seek the mediation of Rome in their relationship with the Christian God. Thus, Dostoevsky found that Rome's idea of universal monarchy, sustained by its laws and legions, survived in the institution of the Church, whose violent legacy included the Reformations and the French Revolution. 
It is difficult to trace Dostoevsky's main representative of this historic Roman legacy, that is Napoleon Bonaparte, to a single source. But in Adam Mickiewicz's novel Pantagiusz, one finds this essential idea embodied in this phrase. Napoleon is a Catholic of prime example. The, the, point, the Pope anointed him after all. While Dostoevsky identifies the Jesuits with casuistry, Hegel names Julius Caesar a paragon of Roman adaptation of means to ends, for he achieved universal sovereignty with the conquest of the whole Roman world and held together the Roman world by force. Furthermore, in Crime and Punishment, the presence of Lycurgus, Solon, and Napoleon in Raskolnikov's theory suggests that the murderer's article draws on the portraits of these lawgivers in Hegel's lectures on the philosophy of history. And Hegel introduces his section on the Roman world by paraphrasing Napoleon, who maintains that the modern world differs from the ancient in that the modern no longer endorses destiny to which men are absolutely subject, but concludes that policy occupies the place of the ancient fate. The similar conceptualizations of Rome and Hegel and Dostoevsky, in addition to the likelihood that the latter read the philosophy of history in Siberia, suggest Dostoevsky's concept of the Roman idea of dominion contains within it an understanding of Caesar's and Napoleon's forcible occupations of Europe, which may account for the presence of their names in the notebooks for crime and punishment. Their Roman legacy informs Raskolnikov's article about the extraordinary man, in which he finds that the pursuit of an idea may require relative legal, uh, relative legal crimes, but not necessarily immoral deeds, based on the process of case reasoning. Hence, bloodshed and good conscience for a worthy idea remains the focus of Raskolnikov's theory and his admiration of Napoleon, as he tries to avoid the commonplace emulation of the emperor by those convinced that they have been destined for greatness. In Dostoevsky's travels, he did not encounter in France's second empire either Napoleonic heroes or the underground man's French romantics. Instead, he discovered that melodrama and vaudeville created by French lackeys dominated the stage in an appeal to the Catholic bourgeois tastes for noble sentiment and moral instruction. These new mores also infect the French Catholic potters in Dostoevsky's travel writings, winter notes, and summer impressions as they seek material gains from their spiritual followers. While in Paris, Dostoevsky viewed an architectural fusion of French Catholicism with revolutionary values in the structure known as the Pantheon, or the former Church of saint jean Following the 1789 revolution, the National Assembly in France had converted the church to a pantheon with the inscription to the great men, the grateful homeland, and had laid in its crypts its heroes such as Voltaire and Rousseau, the latter being that representative of both church and revolution despised by Dostoevsky. The writings of these Enlightenment philosophes, whose political ideas had inspired the 1789 revolution, had shared a common concern over the papacy's move towards a centralized aristocracy modeled on the absolute monarchies of the 17th and 18th centuries in response to the Protestant Reformation. Dostoevsky concludes that in their efforts to limit papal power, European idealists like Rousseau sought the dream of recreating anew the world by reason and experience, without realizing that such a world remains a fantasy. The Sonderbund War in the Swiss cantons, the religious debate sparked by the Peace Congress, the rise of old Catholicism, 
the papal battle for Rome, and Bismarck's Kulterkampf demonstrated that Reformation history continued to haunt 19th century Europe. When in Geneva during the meetings of the League of Peace and Freedom in 1867, Dostoevsky was disturbed by demands for the abolition of religion by socialists and atheists who wanted to dismantle the standing army of priests, as Dostoevsky describes in his correspondence. It was immediately decided that in order to attain peace, it is necessary to exterminate the Pope and the entire Christian religion by fire and sword. The League's arguments over revolution and religion are present not only in Prince Mishkin's observation that lapsed Catholics turned socialists employed the sword and the blood, but also in Pyotr Vyachavyensky's willingness to employ fire and Fiedka's knife to motivate his circle of conspirators. And based on the examples discussed here today, as well as other included in my monograph, I concluded that Dostoevsky's selective citation of the Catholic literary tradition advanced the tradition's association with violence, sexuality, and duplicity, partly owing to the fact that he chose works written in response to crises such as the Reformation or the French Terror. This seems intentional, since he holds the clergy responsible for the latter, as he indicates in the depiction of a Parisian archbishop who emerges out onto the public square after the first French Revolution to lay aside publicly his power and is beheaded for his past exploitation of the faithful. On this type of priest, Dostoevsky blames the ensuing liquidation of the Christian faith in the name of reason, which represents the violence that the Grand Inquisitor seeks to avoid by maintaining order with a combination of spiritual manipulation and the corrective measures of inquisitional torture. Biblically-based torment in House of the Dead by the Executioner anticipates this preoccupation with the artistry of torture on the public square since the executioner requires his victims to recite the Lord's Prayer so that he can rhyme with the end of the line in heaven with his order to begin the flogging, give it to him. All the same, Dostoevsky engages the Catholic tradition in a more meaningful way than his progressive contemporaries like Herzen or Bakunin, who also perceived the Catholic roots of modern Western revolutionary movements. The, revolutionary, the revolution secularized what it could from the catechism, but the revolution, thus like the Reformation, stood on the church's graveyard. Dostoevsky does not dismiss the chivalric qualities of modern agitators as remnants of a bygone era like Herzen, but discovers that the chivalric ideal survives and perpetuates a curious paradox, whereby the privileged position of the knight who vowed to protect and serve the powerless represented a feudal order that required the exploitation of serf labor. Thus, the Knights and the Catholic Church, with, which endorsed the chivalric order and defined its requirements regarding fast prayers and oaths, stand in the position of both self-proclaimed protector and de facto oppressor of the peasantry. For this reason, the Grand Inquisitor evokes both the Catholic legacies of benevolent chivalry and principled rebellion, as well as the Catholic reputation for coercion and false martyrdom. To forestall the tragedy of post-feudal conflict portended by Karl Marx, Dostoevsky recommends that Russia isolate itself from Catholic and westernizing trends by controlling eastward migration. But he does not reject the images created by Catholic writers, such as that of the knight errant with quixotic dedication to an absurd ideal, and instead suggests that they be assimilated into the literature of Russian geniuses. Here, these Catholic forms and types 
retain their outsidedness to Russian culture, even as they enter the works of Russian authors, so that a certain hierarchy based on ethnicity and religion is embedded in Dostoevsky's poetics. Viewing tragedy as an ancient form of worship and literature as a medium that can shape faith, Dostoevsky does not endorse a transnational world literature without borders, but reserves for a Russian consciousness the artistic legacies of the Renaissance and Reformations, since the European revolutionaries contaminated by the Catholic legacies of socialism and atheism can no longer properly appreciate antiquated forms impacted by Roman aesthetics. And that's sort of where I ended my book. But I noticed as I started lecturing on it, people were very interested in my discussion of the Jesuits. So I have an addendum as my conclusion. I would like to conclude today by addressing Dostoevsky's depiction of Jesuits as a papal army equipped with casuistry to ensure the prosperity of the Vatican and to set free those faithful overburdened by their consciences. First, Dostoevsky's presentation of the Jesuits is not as demonized as that found in the conservative press in his day, in which discussions of the unrest in the Congress Kingdom of Poland degenerated into intolerant remarks about the priest's involvement in agitation and intrigue. Dostoevsky's opposition to Jesuitism becomes more pronounced after the decree of papal infallibility because he believed that a militant force was moving across Europe, that is ultramontanism, or the idea that the faithful around the globe turn to the papacy rather than the leadership of national, national churches for guidance in spiritual and secular matters. In his diary of a writer, he repeatedly expresses the conviction that there exists a pan-European clerical conspiracy supported by the Vatican to encourage Catholic ag agitation within Russia's borders. Indeed, the Catholic invasions of Moscow in 1612 and 1812 encouraged Dostoevsky to identify not with the imposture of the monk Atrepiev of Alexander Pushkin's tragedy, but with the writing of his cellmate, the aged chronicler Piemann, who, spurning the temptations of the world in favor of recording truthful narratives, passes his literature to the learned young Atrepiev, who makes use of them to seize the throne. Therefore, when creating his own monk, Father Zosima, an answer to the Grand Inquisitor, Dostoevsky places him in provincial Russia, where he hears the confessions and demands painful reconciliations. For as he shares with this mysterious guest who goes mad and perishes from the admission of guilt, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Zosima rejects his guest's attempt to maintain that the murder was inevitable, because the narrator tells us about this guest. The thought that his victim could become the spouse of another seemed impossible to him, and therefore for a long time he was convinced in his own conscience that he could not have acted otherwise. In this manner, Dostoevsky reaffirms the unreliability of conscience that he displays in the rantings of his more famous murderer Raskolnikov, who finally confesses to Sonia. I did not kill so that having received the power and the means, I could make myself the benefactor of humanity. Nonsense. I simply killed. For myself, I killed, and for myself alone. Yvonne's double further confirms the moral laxity of Dostoevsky's age, maintaining that decent people suffered most of all, since only the ones without a conscience won, because what are pangs of conscience to him who has none at all? Yet Raskolnikov's emphasis on the conscience's intent of the act as a determining factor in its criminality 
when coupled with Smerdyakov's conviction that a lifetime of good deeds can atone for renouncing Christ, indicates that Dostoevsky rejects the logic of casuistry. Indeed, his two Ipadits, who are destined to die prematurely in The Idiot and the Brothers Karamazov, suggest that Dostoevsky appreciates the power of divine fate in Racine's Fedre, in which the innocent youth, Hippolyte, is fated to be executed by the gods at the request of his own father. Thus, on the spectrum of grace versus works, Dostoevsky resides closer to the Jansenists, based on the formative way in which encounters with the divine impact his character, such as Alyosha Karamazov, who emulates Christ in the submission of his will, not only to his elder Zosima, but also to the simply, something solid and unshakable that descended into his soul during his cathartic, ecstatic commingling with other worlds, when, Alyosha's, when in Alyosha's own world, words, someone visited my soul. Sonia, in her interpretive reading of the Lazarus narrative, provides an ecstatic, uh, ecstatic, tremulous affirmation of her dependence on the providence of the triune God. But it is Fidrigailah's charity that allows her to act in accordance with her faith and abandon her profession. Prince Mishkin consents moments before his epileptic fit an elusive beauty in prayer, or the highest synthesis of life. And yet he remains powerless to prevent Nastasia Filipovna's tragic end, as well as his own descent into idiocy. Mitya believes that God protected him the night his father was killed, but at the same time, <coughs> Grigori's pains of conscience at leaving the house unguarded, as well as a premonition that something was amiss in the garden, allow him to, main, to place Mitya at his father's house on the night of the murder. So Dostoevsky, an often impoverished former convict and epileptic, whose parents died before he published his first work, whose first wife died of consumption, whose first daughter died in infancy, and whose toddler son died of an epileptic fit, believed strongly in reversal of fortune or change of fate, especially as a result of a faithful servant being receptive to random moments of divine intervention in creation. Yet it is precisely this miraculous dimension that the Grand Inquisitor denies to Christ by refusing to shout Hosanna, by having him seized and incarcerated, by denying him a right to his own word, and by banishing him from Seville. Alyosha's vision of the banquet, however, suggests that the concurrent existence of the earthly realm with the heavenly sphere signifies a real and present danger to the Grand Inquisitor's city-state since divine intervention could destroy the commingling of his miracle mystery and authority, thereby exposing the cornerstone of coercion at the center of his theocracy. Moreover, the Inquisitor gains nothing for his purported sacrifice, since Dostoevsky's account of the French clergy during the terror, as well as the underground man's observation on humankind's phenomenal ingratitude, confirm that the Inquisitor's flock will not appreciate his sacrifice. But, like the crowds witnessing the corruption of Zosima, will rejoice at his downfall. As the Orthodox elder prophetically foretells, man loves the fall of the righteous one in his disgrace. It is in this love of the fall of the righteous that humankind celebrates the devil's arithmetic. Time for questions. Is there any evidence that Dostoevsky was aware of Catholic priests who weren't Jesuits or clergy who were not Jesuits? 
Well, he writes about the archbishop, so um, I don't think they're always, and sometimes he calls them abbe or pache, yeah, so um, he uses the French word for it. Um, I get the feeling that that's coming from literature, not from any personal experience that he's had. I'm curious if Dostoevsky had any familiarity with uh, Demest as a representative in Russia, as a representative of a very sort of extreme um, Catholic and specifically an idea of the um, role of the clergy as a uh, guiding influence on society. Oh, I can't really specifically speak to that. I, I would say that I, my feeling has been that Dostoevsky draws it mostly from literature, uh, that the Catholic priests that he met were probably when he was abroad and not when he was in Russia. Um, and uh, I know that there were traveling Catholic priests who would sometimes celebrate sacraments when they were in Siberia, but I have not heard any reference to them being in Omsk, which was where Dostoevsky was located. So I think most of his knowledge is derived not just from literature, but from the press. He was an avid reader of the press, especially when he had to travel and he wanted to stay connected to Russia. And so my feeling is through press, through foreign literature, and then through some chance encounters, maybe when he was in Paris, that's where he derives his knowledge from it. So the, the problem with Catholicism for Dostoevsky was that they, they got their theology wrong, and as a consequence of getting their theology wrong, there were at least two consequences. One was atheism. And the other was uh, revolutionary movements. And these revolutionary movements in particular threw up sort of like Napoleonic sorts of figures. And the problem with all of that is it, that it uh, constituted a threat to Russia. I date a lot of this to his um, being incarcerated with Polish political prisoners. And that he sees that he bases a lot of his Catholicism on this. And that because of this, he believes that um, that Catholicism is more politically engaged than it generally is. Right, so uh, Catholicism is politically engaged in undermining Russia, mm -hmm. and the reason why it's engaged politically in trying to undermine Russia is that it got its theology wrong at some point. That it has some good things, like maybe the, uh, the extraordinary aspiration of, of Roman Catholic spirituality and the way that it holds out like the, the mystical tradition and the encounter with the divine, that's mm -hmm. good. But um, but it doesn't adequately show people how to get there. So it's a uh, it's 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 a it's a futile project, and that leads to the atheism. 
Ah, where's the atheism coming from? Yeah, where's the atheism coming? Uh, the anti-authoritarianism. Anti-authoritarianism. Yeah, so the fact that Catholicism lost its moral authority with... <laughs> It violated, um, <coughs> like, do, do not kill. Um, and after having lost that, socialism came in in its wake. And socialism is brought in the atheism. Socialism, he sees as being derived from Rousseau, and he sees Rousseau as derived from the rejection of Catholicism. So that's the line. And you have to derive it from very few sentences that he wrote. It's not a it's not a systematic study. Right. And we have to keep remembering that that he drew his opinions not from books of philosophy. No, he didn't. Uh, but, I mean, but essentially from literature. So he had this aesthetic imagination where uh, he he read novels and and, uh, and his views sort of emerged from his aesthetic appreciation of the novels. Well, I think it's telling that he talks about this level of idea, too. Because he leaves everything, I've talked about this in the book, um, he leaves everything on the level of idea, which is a general concept, rather than breaking down what builds that idea. And so it allows him to use it as an umbrella term. So he doesn't always have to define things um, in detail, which is why he takes the word protest out of pro Protestant and sees it literally as a protest against Catholicism. Right. So, so you're going back to Sebastian Flight about, uh, well, of course I can believe all that. It's a lovely idea, and that's how I believe. And so it's probably entirely wrong-headed of me to try to pick out the stages of his argument because he doesn't have stages of his argument, he just, he has these lovely ideas. I, and then it also depends upon where he is at the moment geographically, right? He writes The Idiot when he's terribly unhappy um, in Western Europe. He had to flee there because he owed money in Russia. With uh, a young wife, she was 20 years younger than he was, and he had to keep her happy. He was very stressed out, and then their daughter died about a month after she was born. And that's, that's where he writes the idiot. So he was not in a good place when he was writing it. And that's where that famous line about atheism and socialism is discussed in its greatest detail. Anybody else? You kind of touched on this, but what role did his epilepsy play on his encounters with the divine? Or what um, it's described mostly in the idiot's um, thought to think that he had visions, but he also believed in dreams. So I think that for me, and I haven't fully investigated this part of Dostoevsky, I think he just believed that people had everyday contact with the divine. It doesn't mean that the same person had contact every day with the divine, but you could over the course of your life have many moments where there was divine intervention that you witnessed. And certainly, he attributes it to different characters in his works. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you very much.